They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises Caucus PAC. I'm Liam McCollum, and I'm your host for today. And my guest today on episode 102 is Luke Tatum. We're going to be talking about his new book in the infinite banking concept. So I'm going to bring him in right now. How's it going, Luke? Hey, Liam. Uh, good to see you. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I I'm doing great. And I, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. Um, figured I'd, I'd just let you introduce yourself, kind of give the audience a little bit of your background, uh, how you got interested in liberty and economics, and then um, how you ended up finding infinite banking. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would not be in the infinite banking space if not for the liberty space, right? So it was de definitely a liberty first kind of a thing as as it should be, right? Uh, but my name's Luke Tatum. I am the founder, CEO of Perfect Spiral Capital. That is my financial firm that deals with infinite banking. And I'm also the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Between the Lies, How to Reclaim Your Future from the Banks and Wall Street, which is 99 cents for the Kindle version. If anyone is interested in reading it, you can check that out on betweentheliesbook.com. You can get to my regular site on perfectspiralcapital.com. But uh, yeah, a little bit of my backstory. It's actually a little silly and boring, but uh, we were... We were... Um, I say we, my wife and I, um, we were then dating, now married, but we, uh, for early on in our relationship, we're interested in checking out the whole raw milk thing. It's like, oh, cool, you know, there's direct to, to consumer farms out there in some places. We're from smaller towns in Texas, and so we found one nearby. We get to know the people that uh, operate one of these farms start buying the milk, et cetera, et cetera, kind of integrating into that culture a little bit. And they put on a sort of an event one day where they said, hey, you know, we're going to have vendors and speakers and all this stuff. So we go out there and uh, there was a guy from the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, which is a really cool organization, uh, helping farmers not be uh, railroaded by, you know, the FDA and similar agencies. And so he was out there talking about Ron Paul. This was years ago. And so when, before Ron Paul's last run for president and talking to him and he's like, oh yeah, you know, Ron Paul's the only guy that actually cares about any of this stuff in Washington. And so I discovered Ron Paul through this vendor at a local farm. And 
then it's like, okay, YouTube videos, Ron Paul starts recommending, you know, you should maybe read some books, right? I, I had given up on reading for many years because school beat that right out of me. And uh, so start reading The Law by Bastiat. And then I dove as far in as you can and read Human Action by Mises. And I read Man, Economy, and State by Rothbard and et cetera, et cetera. And that's, I mean, my for video viewers, like my bookshelf back there is a lot of that stuff. But um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's kind of my story in a nutshell. My wife and I both went from eh, sort of kind of politically aware a little to like activists kind of in the Ron Paul world to anarchists. And so, you know, here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's awesome. Uh, it, it always seems to go back to Ron Paul, at least um, people who, who are younger. Um, I, I know my, my civics teacher in high school introduced me to libertarianism and uh, he had a photo of Ron Paul at the front of his classroom. So that's, I inadvertently came to libertarianism through my, through Ron Paul, but uh, he was introduced to libertarianism uh, in the 2012 election. And now here I am. So uh, it's, awesome. it's a beautiful story. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's what we're trying to do with the Mises caucus. It's the Ron Paul revolution 2.0. Um, but to get into your book and infinite banking, uh, I, I really appreciate that um, your uh kind of interest in in this is grounded in Rothbardianism. And and I think it would be important uh, to kind of provide some context uh, today for the listener who who maybe has never uh, really looked into finance before and, and really viewed the current financial environment through a Rothbardian lens. Um, so we, we recently just saw that the second largest bank in, in U.S. history uh, failed. Um, and, and many people are probably freaking out. And, and you actually have a, a chapter in your book about banks and why banks aren't your friend. Um, so I'm curious if you can just respond to this crisis so we can pr provide some context for the listener who who's like infinite banking. What, what is that? Um, relate all of this to uh, what we're seeing right now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we can definitely start there, Liam. I mean, this is a good it's it's honestly like you know, obviously there are bad things happening in the world, right? Like there are people's deposits at risk and there, you know, there are things that are negative that are occurring. Uh, I'm honestly very excited when I see these banks in trouble and thing, because I, I see the kind of uh, immoral foundation that the whole system is sort of built upon. And so like, you know, to me, it's like it couldn't happen to a better group of people, right? Than these, these, ultra rich bankers and whatnot. Like, not that I'm despising them for being rich or whatever. It's, it's that the system that they're perpetuating is, you know, they're, they're making money out of nothing and lending it at interest. Right. So that's bad. Uh, that's a, that's a moral catastrophe. And so the, the thing that's going on now with, you know, the banks being in trouble, like I, I won't bore anyone here with like what interest rate risk is or any of those things and get like extraordinarily technical about why they're in trouble or anything like that. But the the simple fact is that we have what's known as fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve banking means that not all of the money is really there, right? There is a fraction of what they say that they have that's actually on reserve and so if everyone shows up at the same time or even a majority or even a, a 
very small number of depositors show up all at once and say, hey, where's my money? It's not there. And so that's a problem, right? And that that leads to a, what's called a run on the bank. And, and it it's it's bad news for people, right? We saw this in 2008 and, and that whole fiasco, and we're seeing it again now. And so it it honestly, it's kind of an interesting standpoint for me because you know, I wrote this book and I talk about banking and how the bank is not your friend and how all these underlying problems exist. And I wrote it before these bank runs and things started to occur. And so, you know, I wrote it because the stuff that's in there is true. Like I, one of the things I'm proud of with my book is it's well-documented. There's lots of links and things. And I even took the time to archive on archive.org, all of the backlinks for all of this stuff. So it's always going to be there. You, you will have something to click on, you know, if you click those links, no matter what. But the, um, you know, it could have been 10 years before this sort of thing started to happen. The fact is, like, these underlying conditions are present, right? And it, we can get into the nitty gritty as much as you want to, Liam. I'm, I'm happy to talk about, you know, the specifics of, of the system and, and why it's bad, you know, and all those things. But, you know, when we're talking about, okay, if I go to get money out of the bank, they might tell me, or if we're talking about, well, I have a mortgage and I still owe $250,000 on a house and the bank might be in trouble, so they might go ahead and demand a full repayment next week. Like Those are really, really scary things. And so that is why I make a case for not banking in a regular bank, a fractional reserve bank, uh, because there, I mean, there's significant risk involved with that, that people are, you know, you have this catchphrase, right? Like uh, it's, you take your money to the bank. You can take that to the bank. People talk about the bank as being the safest place on earth, and your money's not there, man. It's just not. So I, maybe that's a good <laughs> a good first pass answer, and we can kind of dig in from there. Yeah, and I mean, in, in March of 2020, we, we saw that the Federal Reserve actually got rid of all reserve requirements. So, I mean, legally, there is no requirement that they keep any of your money. I mean, there might be practical reasons why they still have a, a fractional reserve or whatever. But uh, legally, they are not required to, and, and most people have been saying for a while that um, uh, banks are required to keep at least 10%, but that's just not the case legally anymore. So it, it is a very scary reality. And while I was reading through your book and while I was discussing with um, Michael Heiss and everyone who, who requested that I interview you, uh, they were saying that I was actually a, a prime candidate for infinite banking. And, and <laughs> quite frankly, I, I didn't know uh, enough about it. I'm, I'm 22 years old. I, I hardly know anything about finance. I, I've just now started to think about it. Um, so I kind of want to approach that. I kind of want to approach the interview um, like you're approaching someone who's 22 years old, who is about to start um, maybe investing or um, looking at life insurance. Um, and, and first, like, w if you were to sit someone my age down and explain to them what to do with finances, I, I, I'm curious if you can explain what uh, the status quo would recommend. Like, what is the normal approach that people my age might take uh, at my age? Like, what, um, obviously, uh, people might recommend um, a savings account, um, a credit card, 
things like that. But um, why don't you explain the status quo and then uh, dismantle it? No, I, I think that's a great setup. Yeah, that's that's a, an awesome approach. And I know exactly what they'll tell you because I was trained by those people and I know what they told me to tell people, right? And so like, I, I know what they'll tell you if you go into Charles Schwab or, or whatever other place. And so, yeah, what, what that's going to look like. I mean, obviously everyone has some kind of bank account, right? Like when you, when you can, your parents or whoever is, is probably going to encourage you to have some kind of bank account, right? They don't want to be paying for every single thing in your life anymore. They want you to do it yourself. You have to kind of come up with uh, how much money is, is uh, going to be needed for different things. And so you uh, and you have to reconcile, right? It's like, how do you balance a checkbook? That's what people used to say. I don't know if anyone still says that. But the the idea is that, okay, you make some money. What do you make? You make this much money a month. Okay, you should take percentages. You should say, okay, this is for housing. This is for, you know, fun money. This is for your um, necessities, your utilities, you should budget and you should budget month to month and master that skill. And then you should be setting aside at least 10% of your income for the future. That's, that's how that's going to frame up. And so what does that mean? Well, for a financial services company, a standard financial services company, you're going to have a uh, recommendation that you put it in the stock market. That's just what it's going to be, right? Exactly what the ratios are, how much is in equities, how much is in bonds, those kind of things. That's going to be up for debate. It's going to depend on your risk profile, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's going to work like this. Okay, you should get a job. You should get a good job that offers a 401k. Preferably, they offer a 401k with a match. And then when they, when they match... There, it's going to be a certain percentage. So, okay, if you contribute 5% of your income and they match 5%, wow, that's great because now you you get 10% going into the stock market, right? 10% of your income. Uh, that has various assumptions and flaws built into that. Uh, break some of that down in the book, why that's not really actually what's happening, but that's what they're going to say. And so the, the 401k... And, and maybe your employer doesn't have a match. Maybe they match 3% and you're contributing 5%. Maybe whatever, you know, the ratios change, the numbers change. It doesn't particularly matter, but they're going to say, take the free money. So max out your contributions or contribute as much as you can get a match on to your 401k through your employer. If they offer a Roth 401k or some kind of Roth IRA, then you should max that out too, right? Because- yeah, you just want to do all these tax qualified retirement plans. That's that's the advice. And then beyond that, you know, so when you're really successful and you really start making strides and you can afford to max out those accounts and everything, your income keeps going up, you're doing amazing. Okay, now you need to bring it to us, the Charles Schwab, you know, whoever, whatever financial services firm. And we're gonna build you a stock portfolio, we're gonna set up a traditional IRA, we're gonna set up you know, whatever cool investment tool, or we're going to start saving for your kid's retirement or excuse me, your kid's college education, uh, 429 plan. I'm just saying everything wrong today, Liam, 529 plan. And um, they're going to 
uh, you know, just just throw as many of those tools of tax qualified kind of niches that the government has created over the years at you uh, as you'll take. If you keep buying them, they'll keep selling them. And that's just how it is. Again, the specifics vary. It's like, do you want to put it all in the S&P 500? Do you want to buy individual stocks? We'll build this really cool list of stocks. And guess what? The list that they build is going to be a bunch of companies from the S&P 500. So it's the same thing. Um, they, you know, what have you. Everybody's a little different as to how they're going to approach these things. But that's the advice. Load up on these tax-qualified plans, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'll be sure that you have all this money. You're going to have so much in retirement, man. And you can just kick back and you can go on vacations and all this stuff. Well, okay. You can do that if you want. And that guarantees that you're going to have to wait until you're the government certified retirement age to start tapping into your money and start really, you know, accessing those funds and doing all this stuff. So you're, you're giving up a lot of years in your case, 22 years old. That's a long time, right? So, okay, cool. I'll start throwing all this money in this account and you can't touch it until you're 59 and a half years old. Otherwise you have a big old penalty on top. And and you're interrupting the compounding nature of that tool, right? So that's the part they don't tell you. <laughs> they tell you, oh, this is for the future, et cetera. Uh, it's going to help you retire. But things come up. You know how many people take 401k loans and finance like a home renovation or buy a car or do different things like that using a 401k loan? A lot, a lot of people. And when you do that, you've broken the system, okay? If... You imagine a 401k is this continuously compounding vehicle where your money is always reinvesting and building and it's always going up and up. If that's what you, I mean, that's wrong, but if that's what they've kind of sold to you as this idea, well, if you take a compounding tool and you pull a bunch of money out of it, you broke the thing. You reset the compounding. You've destroyed that. Well, the real truth is it's not even a compounding tool. I mean, the stock market doesn't just go up like that. That's not what it does. It goes up and down all the time. And so you don't have, I swear to you, they will say, you know, compounding. They'll, they'll say that in the conversation, but that's not what it is. It's, it's just not correct. And so that's where something like the infinite banking concept, dividend paying permanent whole life insurance policies from a mutual company. Uh, that's where this kind of can come in because I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you don't buy stocks. I'm not telling you don't invest money. And as, as a matter of fact, I'm not telling you that a life insurance policy is an investment because it isn't. It's a savings vehicle. It's a way to accumulate wealth over time. And so it's, it's not that you shouldn't save for the future and invest for the future. You should do those things. But first, <laughs> you should back up and say, okay, where is my money going to reside? And the, answer, the choices are under your mattress in cash, you know, which is de devaluing all the time. Cryptocurrency, which has its own, you know, there's a bunch of different options. There's a bunch of different fluctuations in value. There's 
a bunch of different use cases and considerations there. It's not to say that crypto is bad, but like there's limitations on that. Not every single place can you just walk in and say, well, I've got some, you know, XRP here. Will you accept this for my whatever that you're trying to buy? It's just there's there's some layers to that, right? And then, of course, you could put it in a bank. Um, the bank, as we we're talking about, has some problems, but it is very convenient. You've got a debit card and those sort of things. And then you could put it, and again, like this is my mind-blowing revelation. You could put it in a life insurance policy. Why should you do that? Well, because it's always increasing in value all the time. Okay, and it's a 100% reserve system. So when you put your money in a bank, as I outline in, in the book for anyone that picks it up, they will take, you know, you put $1,000 in, they're going to make a new $900 loan to someone else. So then there will be $1,900 because you deposited $1,000. $900 loan to somebody else, $1,000 that's sort of there. And then they'll, you know, go through their reserve requirements and they'll move that to another institution, et cetera. But at least at the beginning, it creates an extra $900. And then when that gets repaid, they loan it out again. When that gets repaid, they loan it out again. It keeps doing this, this thing where they make new money all the time. That is fueling inflation, and that is devaluing the dollar all the time, every time somebody puts money in a savings account. <laughs> and and uh, a secondary effect of it is that I think it's actually um, it's incentivizing people to participate in this gambling system that you've described where they're putting their money in the stock market because right. they are losing value. Their, their money and their savings are losing value. So in order to keep up with, with the first receivers of this new money, they have to invest it in the economy yeah. and hope that it um, appreciates in value over, over time. So, I, I mean, would you say that, that they kind of, the, the banks and wall street in this way are, are helping, helping each other out? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge con game. Like, I mean, in no uncertain terms, right? Like that's actually, I'll hold up my book for anyone that can see it. That's where the cover idea came from. Like this line or whichever line you want to use. One of them is the banking system. One of them is wall street. Right. And so you kind of are told to kind of stay in your lane, right. And, and operate within this framework and we're going to keep you kind of on track and all this stuff. And it, it's exactly right. Right. The mutual fund industry and all of this stuff is perfectly set up to receive people who are like, wow, wait a minute. I don't want to put all this money in the bank. And the banks are perfectly set up to receive people who are like, wait a minute, the stock market's a casino. I'm just going to put all my money in savings. Right. Like they just feed off of each other all the time. And, you know, I, I'm somewhat critical of people like Dave Ramsey. Uh, in in there, uh, like we're Dave Ramsey people, or we were for a few years. We paid off our house, et cetera, et cetera. And I love the idea of just okay, just pay cash for everything, right? Just keep money physically close. But when it's devaluing, when the inflation rate is seven or nine or fourteen percent, like okay, I mean, you maybe want to do something about that. But the stock market is not necessarily the answer, right? I've got friends who are day traders. If you know what you're doing, then do it. But the the assumption that's been laid out at society's feet is 
okay, in order to fight inflation, because inflation is this mysterious thing that is always happening and we can't do anything about it, you need to put money in the stock market. You're going to have to put money in the stock market to beat inflation, right? And that's that's not correct. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of how that dynamic goes. But the um, the the insurance companies are not banks, right? That's one of my my big points. Is this is not the advice they're giving you? Um, some financial services places will tell you like whole life insurance is super great and you ask kind of why and they're like well because it's super great they don't really explain <laughs> what's so great about it you know it's like oh but it has cash value like and it's just there's this very very surface level analysis out there that you'll see sometimes of oh you're gonna make all this money and that's just not that's not the point the point is that when you put money in a one of these specially designed, what we call an infinite banking policy, then it is going to earn money. It's going to increase in value for you forever, even if, and this is only true with what's called a non-direct recognition company. Again, this is why you have to have a, a professional do this for you and, and help you navigate it. But it, it's going to increase in value all the time, even if you take money out of that policy to do other things. Okay, so you will in parallel at the exact same moment have an increasing cash value in this policy all the time, and you can go invest your money or buy a car or whatever, finance the you know home renovation project. You will, you will get the growth in the policy and you will get the other thing. Let's just say it's a car. If you go buy a car just in cash, Dave Ramsey style, or you, you know, worse yet, take a, a loan from a regular bank and you put 5% down on a car, then you, uh, you hand money to the car dealership. They give you the keys, right? That's it. Next year, you didn't earn anything on that money. You just have a car. Two years later, you didn't earn any money from that money that you used to have. You just have a car. You can do it differently. You can get increased value over time, helping you to fight inflation, and you can get the car, right? It just requires discipline, savings, understanding upfront. You have to understand what you're doing before you can, you know, apply this principle. And so uh, that's that's kind of where I go, get into in the, the tail end of the book is like, you know, you, you've got to take responsibility for these things. You've got to understand them. And then this is the power of understanding and implementing these over time. You can use it to buy crypto for all I care, right? It doesn't matter what you buy, <laughs> but you should use this first before you go do those other things. That's my that's my advice. Yeah, so the the first chapter of your book, and and I think really your entire book is about taking responsibility, and and you offer up an acronym, um, and you I actually wanted to read this quote. I, I think it's from Nash uh, Nelson. Mm -hmm. Nash um, says people just don't play their proper role in the scheme of things. They have abdicated their opportunity or responsibility as it pertains to the banking function in the economy. They're depending on some someone else to perform that job and that character and the play is making most of the money. Um, so I, 
I just wanted to give you an opportunity to explain like the the acronym that you offer up in the first book. I, I believe it's truth. It's like a five step almost program to uh, liberate yourself from the banking uh, system as, as it currently stands. So uh, do you want to break that down? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's it's called the truth blue, blueprint. Sorry, I'm misspeaking truth blueprint. And so truth is the acronym. The first letter T take responsibility. R is reclaim your money. U is undo your debts. T is transcend your expenses. And H is help others. And so what that basically breaks down to, what that means, so take responsibility is all in your own head. Like you've got to just get past this, oh, the government or oh, Wall Street or the banks or whoever, whoever you like are counting on out there in the pre-constructed, world of of you know this this financial narrative that we're all kind of stuck in well whoever you think has got your back out there you probably need to re-examine that right i can just shift all that responsibility from all those other people onto you and figure out what you need to do to you know transform your own or your family's or your business's life and so that's step one step two reclaim your money that's infinite banking i mean that's i'll be just blatant with it. That's what that is. It's figure that out, understand the principles involved, understand that that there is a better way and implement that. And there's lots of ways to implement it. Um, that's, it that's, it's, a, it's fun. I have fun every day talking to people about implementation and doing that stuff because it's everything is a puzzle. We'll get to solve it with people, right? And then you is undo your debts. And you do, I mean, it's literally true that with the infinite banking policies, you're using a what's called a policy loan in order to access funds from this. That's how you get the double growth, so to speak. Like you can use the money and keep the money in the policy at the same time is what's going on. It's because it's called a policy loan. But undo your debts is about undoing your debts from all of these other institutions where you don't get to play a role in the growth of that company. Like uh, the example I always I, I beat up on Bank of America all the time, right? Because why wouldn't you? And so Bank of America, like you're not on their board of directors. You don't get a bonus when they make money. They don't care, right? I mean, they don't care about you. They just don't. A mutually owned life insurance company is owned by the people who own policies. So when they're profitable, they pay you. It's It's just that's how it is. They're not going to not pay you. <laughs> they might not be profitable, but a lot of these companies have been profitable every single year consistently for 100, 115, 130, in some cases, 150 years, right? So longer than the New York Stock Exchange or the S&P 500 or any of these things have, have been around every year, they've been profitable. But again, I, you can't promise that the dividend is going to continue. It's just... It, it could, <laughs> and you would stand to gain if you were set up in, in this way. Uh, but but you get rid of those other debts to those other institutions, right? You pay the interest to yourself, and that's a whole big involved idea. We don't have to get into the, the nitty-gritty on, but uh, that's what you should do. If you're going to pay a payment on a debt, you might as well pay a payment on a debt to a company that you own that pays you when it's profitable. I mean, that makes a lot more sense to me than paying Bank of America. And so that's that, and it's kind of like how it makes financial sense to do that and how 
getting rid of those other debts is going to reduce your expenses. And then T, transcend your expenses, is about passive income. It's about finding and understanding investments. Again, if it's the stock market, great. But there are a lot of other things. And I just have a non-comprehensive list in there of other ideas, other ways you can make money, things that have varying levels of involvement that you can do. And, you know, then you just don't, you don't need an IRA to handle those things. You just go do them. <laughs> and you can retire or whatever a lot earlier in life uh, if, you, if you're kind of taking advantage of these different steps and how they work together. And so transcend your expenses. You reach, you complete that step whenever your base living expenses, your required monthly bills that you've got to pay are all covered by passive income sources that you've developed that you understand. And then you're financially free. Like what's left? It's growing that, doing charitable work, doing political donations, you know, whatever it is that's on your mind. If, if you're from a position of financial strength, all this stuff is a lot easier, right? You don't have to go out and come up with some way to come up with money all of a sudden to like help a cause. You've got money. You're just standing by waiting for opportunities. So I, that's what I would like to see more people, especially in our movement, uh, be in that position. And then H, help others, is spreading this. Like if you imagine how powerful this idea is for or this system, even the five steps, for one person, okay, what about a husband and wife both doing it? Okay, what about a husband and wife and three kids, all five doing it? Um, I've got some families that I've got grandfather, father, son, brother of the, the middle, you know, father character, right? So like multiple layers of people all practicing this. And like the, the amount of intergenerational wealth that is creditor protected, can't be touched from, from a taxation standpoint, all of these different things. Like it's a huge amount of money that builds up in these things just by virtue of time passing, right? But just because you decided to start doing it, there's this, this a massive, massive amount of money that builds up over time. And I, you know, if that appeals to me, but <laughs> you have to have a long range view. You can't go, well, I want to make, you know, two X my money by next year. That's not how it works. That's, it's not an investment. <laughs> it's a savings vehicle. It's just a better savings vehicle. And so I, I feel like I'm being long winded, but those are the five steps, right? You get to the end and you've, you're doing your estate planning, your charitable giving, your donation to the Mises Institute when you pass away or whatever it is, right? <laughs> and, uh, and you come a long way by the time you get to that fifth step. Yeah, I wanted you to break that down because I, I do think it is important and, and I think awesome that, that the acronym is TRUTH because really our, our movement and, and the understanding of the Austrian business cycle is based in, in truth and it's really trying to unmask the illusion of, of the current um, system the, the the fact is is that the banking industry is built on um an illusion it is it is false it is false money uh they you know they print fiduciary media and they make it seem as if more uh money exists than there there really is and then of course it it all comes crumbling down and that really is the source of uh, our system so I, I really appreciate that that you uh um labeled it truth and I just wanted 
to give you the opportunity to, um, I guess, explain uh, infinite banking from the ground up. Uh, I got a question from someone on Twitter that that wanted to know, like, what are the ideal parameters to start? Like, um, if you had the ideal candidate with a certain amount of savings, um, certain amount of debt, uh, early in life, and and how much cash should they have to start? And then um, from then from there, if if they sat down with you, I guess, what would you do to explain what what this program does with your money, the mechanisms at play? Um, I, I just want to build from the ground up. So the person sure. who doesn't understand anything about finance, and and I'm guilty of that. I I am <laughs> like like Michael Heiss said, I, I am a prime candidate. Uh, so I, I just yeah, I want you to explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> I, well, I don't know about five, right? Because I'm going to use the word interest and stuff. So yeah. interest is a really hard thing for like at a certain point to understand, um, which if anyone has really young kids, this is an awesome tool to teach kids how, you know, finance and things work, right? At a very young age, because just because so and again, I'll get back to answering your question. I'm sorry, this is a this is a sidebar. But um, like if you have if you have a family bank, which is a life insurance policy or series of life insurance policies, then, you know, your, your kid who's five or nine or whatever wants to buy something and they don't have any money. You know, I don't know if you'd pay an allowance or what have you, but they, they don't have any money. They want to buy something. It's like, okay, you can, you're going to take a loan out of the family bank, right? Let's talk about interest. So if it takes you this long to pay it off, there's this much interest. If it takes you twice that long, there's more interest, right? It, it and how it grows and and all of those things. It's an awesome tool. One of the uh, great things about this, though, is you get to control that, right? If you go into a bank, it's going to be okay. I'm signing up for a 30 year mortgage. You have this payment you have to pay. And the first payment is going to be mostly interest to the bank. And you kind of scale it down, you make extra payments and you really hustle and you get rid of that debt over time uh, to try to reduce how much of your money is going to interest to the bank. Infinite banking or policy loan from a life insurance policy is the opposite. It's I loan $10,000, my balance is $10,000. It accrues interest every day at a fixed rate. And then so, you know, a few cents. Let's just say it's 5%. I'm not good at doing math in my head. I do 5% of 10,000 divided by 365. That's what that is. It's every day it goes up that amount. And so if you pay back your loan, you know, maybe you needed a short, short-term short cash break, 10,000 bucks. Okay, cool. You keep your loan out for two weeks. You have not paid very much in interest. I'll just say that. It's not a payday loan. You've got the money. You're just tapping into it. And you're making sure that the company you loaned it from is not taking a financial hit by loaning you the money. That's really what you're doing. Uh, but so, okay, let me back up. I'll build this up from the ground up. So if, to answer the, the question on Twitter, uh, you can have a very small budget to get started with this. There's a, a, a lot of times, I mean, I use large numbers in my book because large numbers are more exciting than small numbers, right? I mean, if you I sit there and say, okay, you're paying 50 bucks a month into this thing. It's just nobody really gets excited about that. Uh, but my own policy, my first policy was $30 and I believe 68 cents a month. And I still have it because it's my oldest policy. And these get more 
powerful, more, um, more interest, more compounding effect over time, right? So the longest one that you've had is going to be your most efficient from a growth standpoint, all things being equal. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to keep that policy. It's uh, I've got to pay the premium in September and I'm excited to pay it because when I pay my premium, I get a dividend, it goes up, it's awesome. And it happens every year. But if you're just getting into this, you know, for the first time, if you're just starting and figuring out like, what do I want to do here? Okay. You, you want to start with some percentage of your income. It doesn't have to be a percentage of your income. It could be just some made up number, but let's say it's 5% of your income. You want to be really conservative, 3% of your income. I really don't care. And I tell people this, uh, you know, on new client calls, I say, I don't care what your budget is. <laughs> You're steering the ship. You tell me what your budget is. Uh, I'm not going to sell you something that's outside of your, you know, reasonable financial range here. But the idea is that you take this, you're paying what's called a premium payment. That's your, your, you know, just like you pay premiums on homeowners insurance or premiums on your car insurance. It's an insurance premium payment. But this is a whole life insurance contract, which means that there is a death benefit that will be paid someday as long as you are you know taking out the policy in good faith you didn't lie on your application things like that there's a couple of exceptions but uh, re really that's people make up things that are not exceptions when they talk about whole life insurance and i've never understood that um, they're very 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 solid instruments and so but you take this this policy out and let's just say i'm going to make a very small Right. Say it's a $10,000 death benefit. It's a very small policy. And you can do that. You can have a $10,000 death benefit policy. So you are paying a premium every month or every year in exchange for this death benefit of $10,000 when you die. That's the difference between term insurance and whole life insurance. Term insurance pays if you die within a period of time. Whole life insurance pays when you die regardless of how long that is. Uh, so really, technically speaking, it's 121. So if you're 121 years old and still alive, they will hand you a check for your death benefit because you have reached the end of the contract. But you know, let's just assume most people are not going to make it that long. And so when you die, they're going to hand you this death benefit check. Now, if they don't ever pay a dividend ever the entire time that you're alive, then you'll have a $10,000 death benefit that'll pay. But if you're utilizing a kind of custom-designed policy, if you're working with an infinite banking practitioner, uh, which there are many, not just me, you can go to infinitebanking.org and use the practitioner finder and find someone else if you don't like me. Um, I do business in a lot of states, but you know it's just it's your preference, right? I don't I don't want to work with anybody who doesn't want to work with me because it's a lifetime partnership. And so uh, you, you go on and uh, you pay those premiums and your dividend is going to, uh, when a dividend is declared, the dividend will be used to buy additional death benefit. So the first dividend buys more death benefit. Then you don't have a $10,000 death benefit check anymore. You have a $10,650 death benefit check when you die. And then it happens again next year and again next year and again next year. And then you have this other component, uh, which we call paid up additions. 
and I forgive me, we're getting into the technical stuff now, but the paid up additions are miniature life insurance policies. Okay. So you have a $10,000 death benefit and then you buy like another 500 bucks of death benefit. Okay. Then you buy another 500, then you buy another 500, et cetera, et cetera. So in through these two mechanisms, the, divid the dividend and you buying many policies, paid up additions, you're growing the death benefit. The larger the death benefit, the more of the company you own. And so the more of the profitability you earn year after year when they pay a dividend. And so that is how it is compounding tool. Uh, if you assume that they pay a dividend every year, then it looks really nice. If you assume that they don't, it looks kind of kind of slow, you know, but it's going to be somewhere in between those. Dividends fluctuate as the profitability of the company fluctuates. And that's a whole separate conversation. We could do an hour podcast on how dividends work, right? But that's what's going on. And so the first couple of years, yeah, you know, there's definitely less money in that policy than you put into it. Because guess what? You bought a product. You bought a life insurance contract. You've, you've traded money in exchange for a thing, right? In this case, it's a promise to pay a future death benefit. But if you're building it in the right way, you understand the tool, et cetera, et cetera. Six years in, seven years in, eight, nine years in, it depends. It depends on the health of the individual, the age of the individual, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, there's going to be more money in that contract than you have paid. And so you have this non-taxed gain inside this policy, and you can use it over and over and over, right? If you have this little policy and it's grown up and you've got $80,000 of cash value after a few years, uh, several years probably in that case, then guess what? You can take that and you can go buy a car with it. And when you pay off that loan, you've got all the money that you loaned out and all the growth that happened while the money wasn't there. And it, it just, it does what it would have done if you hadn't taken the loan and bought the car. And so this is using the same dollars over and over. It's not really, but it is. <laughs> uh, you're, you're taking a loan, buying a thing, repaying it, and it's all there again, right? As, as opposed to saving up in cash, right? You, your bank balance, I don't know which direction I should orient this. Your bank balance goes up. You have $20,000. You buy a car. You have $0. You save up. You buy something else. You, it drops to zero, right? This doesn't do that. This gets better every year, no matter what, at a faster and faster rate. Because the thing you have to understand about compounding is the very last year is the most profitable year, right? So you're going to you're going to have this gigantic gain potentially on this policy when you're 97, right? And that's going to go to your heirs tax-free because life insurance is not taxable unless you have a huge estate, talking multiple millions of dollars right now. And, you know, of course, I'm not giving financial advice. I'm not giving tax advice and what have you. But uh, under current law, that's that's what it looks like. And so... I don't know. Am I answering your question? <laughs> I feel yeah. like I'm just rambling. Yeah, definitely. And maybe, I don't know if this is a good question, so I, I want you to take it wherever, but um, maybe so the audience can better understand, would, would it be good to maybe talk about, since we're 
speaking about responsibility here, we've mm-hmm. described what the irresponsible thing is when it, when it comes to the banking industry and Wall Street. Um, and now you've unpacked what we should do with the infinite banking concept. But is there a way um, where if someone were to go down this path, they um, would be irresponsible with this type of program? So can you maybe explain what the worst candidate, I guess, for an infinite <laughs> banking con- concept um, might be. So like what, if you were to go down this path, what is the risk um, and what should you avoid doing? Right. Okay. That's a really, really good question. Uh, I'm glad you're asking that. So that's why step one is take responsibility, right? Because if you have not taken responsibility, if you're not willing to commit to the fact that interest rate like the interest rate is a universal thing. Okay. The interest rate is not something that the Fed makes up. The interest rate is the price of time. Okay. And so this whole thing, my favorite Nelson Nash quote, I'll butcher it if I try to say it verbatim. So I'm not going to, but, um, you know, it's, it's the idea that there's always an interest rate. You're always paying an interest rate, no matter what you do. If you go pay cash for something, you have given up the interest you could have earned like we talked about before, right? So you get the car, you don't have the cash. You gave up all future income that that cash could have generated for you. And so you, you know, it's not to say that a car today really costs $150,000 because of the interest or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you either get the car or you get to hold on to the money and get an interest rate. Well, this is a way you can get both. It's the only way that you can get both the interest and the thing. And so, but even then, you've got to take a policy loan to do it. And so let me answer your question directly. The worst candidate is someone who wants to use this to get something for free, right? To make something out of nothing and who does not want to pay back their policy loans ever and all of those things because this is... It is a sense of responsibility that you have to maintain. Now, you can keep a policy loan out. Like, I haven't talked about the loans that much. A policy loan from an insurance company is a contractual right. You have first access to this money even before the insurance company. If you request a policy loan, they must give it to you. It's not, well, my income is down, and you know, so they're not going to give me as much as I want, and you know, all this stuff, like, like a regular bank. Like, when are you going to pay it? How much are you going to pay a month? All these things they have to ask you. The insurance company does not care. They literally do not care. They will send you a letter and say, you have a loan out for $10,000. If you want to, you can write in this blank how much you want us to bill each month. And we'll automatically, you know, take a debit out of your bank account to pay for it every month. You just write whatever number you want. It could be $5. <laughs> it could be $100, you know, whatever you want. I don't do that. I pay loans at completely random intervals. Damn. The interest rate is, you know, the interest is accumulating day after day after day. I don't care because there's an interest rate all the time, and it doesn't matter whether I have a loan out or not. So, and that's a weird way of thinking. Like, people look at me weird when I say that. But... The the person – so I was just actually this morning talking about this. In Becoming Your Own Banker, the book that Nelson Nash wrote where he talks about becoming your own banker, right? It's, it's, it's 
a very descriptive title. That is where the infinite banking concept name comes from. It's from that book. And so he talks about the first national bank of Midland, Texas. I don't remember the year, but the first national bank of Midland, Texas used to be a very, very successful bank. And what happened? A lot of the people who were running that bank started to give themselves loans at insanely low interest rates. What do you think does a bank does if they don't earn any interest on the loans that they make? They go out of business, right? Because you can't get away from the fact that there's an interest rate. <laughs> there's a price on time. And if you're way under what the price is, you're causing problems. And so don't try to do this as a way to like make up a bunch of money that didn't exist before. Like don't try to be a regular commercial banker who's in the fractional reserve business. We're trying to condemn that as a moral evil, or at least I am. So don't do it, man. I like that's that's the simple advice. Do this in a respectful way. What Nelson Nash would say is don't steal the peas. If you run a grocery store, don't give your employees free merchandise. Don't steal from your own store. Don't ruin the thing that you've taken all this time to learn about and understand and set up and get underwritten for. And all, you know, don't put forward all this effort and then mess the thing up one year in, right? It, it's going to be a phenomenal asset for you over the rest of your life. You have to respect the tool. You know, it's like the same thing with, like, if you buy a sports car, you can't just treat the thing like junk. It's going to be junk if you do that, <laughs> right? So uh, that's the idea. And I know I'm kind of keeping it vague. I just... I can ramble for a very long time on the really nitty, the really, really fine details. And, you know, I see people's eyes glaze over, so I'm not going to do that with you, you know, but, um, but that's, that's it. You just treat it with respect, treat yourself and your own finances with respect, and you're going to do great with it. Uh, I, I go to great pains to make sure that people are not signing up for something they don't understand. And that's why. Now, I'm wondering when you when you sit down with people and explain this concept to them, um, what are some of the most common criticisms or I guess um, maybe not criticisms, but why do people choose not to do this after you explain it to them? Uh, what are the justifications that, that people give you for not doing well, this? Well, yeah, I mean, you could get a higher rate of return if you just put your money in the stock market. That's that's what I mean, the number one thing, right? Um, because this is a a tagline, a slogan that's been around since the 80s, buy term and invest the difference. Actually, I think it might even be the 70s when that first came around, but buy term and invest the difference. Whole life insurance is expensive compared to term insurance. Like if you're 22, go price some term life insurance and then get me to run you some numbers on whole life insurance. I guarantee it's going to be a lot more expensive for the same amount of coverage to get whole life because the whole life insurance policy has to pay you, right? The term insurance policy is only going to pay if you die in the 20 years or whatever that, that it's set for. So guess what? It's not going to pay. The chances are very, very low that you're going to receive, you know, that your beneficiary is going to receive the death benefit on that policy. You're probably going to pay a premium for 20 years or 30 years and get nothing. There's no cash value. There's nothing. But you're protected. You know, that's the trade-off. It's cheap. Um, so the, the conventional wisdom is buy term because it's cheap. 
and then take the rest of the money that you would have spent on whole life insurance and put it in the stock market. And there are entire companies, which I will not name, because if you can believe it, it's illegal for insurance agents to uh, speak badly about other insurance companies. So I won't say who it is, but there is actually a company that their letter from the CEO at the front of every single policy says, you know, our buy term and invest a different strategy, blah, 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 is like the greatest thing in the world. And they rant and rave about how cool that is. And so they sell you a term policy and a Roth IRA or whatever. And I don't do that. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't care if you want a Roth IRA, just put it in a life insurance policy first so you can make the money both places at the same time. So, but the problem with that is that, and Dave Ramsey is very guilty of this. He will say, or these, these people, Susie Orman, you know, there's lots of people who will say the same thing. They will say, okay, your stock market investment is going to earn 8%, 10%. I've seen 12%. Dave Ramsey says uh, 12% in his um, Total Money Makeover book, I believe. And it's like, really? Okay, so your stock market's going to earn 12% a year is what it says. That's not what it does. That's, that's not how the stock market works, right? <laughs> that's not how mutual funds work. Uh, they go up and down. And that messes up the whole thing. Anyway, I, I'll harp on that more if you want. But And so if you have term insurance and you have stocks or mutual funds or what have you, and you need some money, what do you do? What if you need money and the stock market is down 40 percent, uh, right? You're going to sell all of your investments at a loss so that you can go, you know, like repair your house or whatever because your floor flooded because your pipe burst under your sink and you didn't notice for six weeks because you were on vacation. You know, you come back home and, oh, I'm sorry, it's a $25,000 repair bill. What are you going to do, right? Uh, if you don't have the money in the bank, you can take a loan and pay a lot of interest. You can beg other people. <laughs> you do a GoFundMe page, right? Or if you're like a well-capitalized, well-rounded, res responsible individual who has f learned about this, and I mean, that's the biggest thing is learning about it and, and set this kind of thing up. It's like, you know what? I got a lot of money sitting around, so it's okay. We'll pay this back as we can. You're self-insuring for whatever happens in life. And it's not just bad things. It's good things, too. If you get a sweet real estate opportunity, you're good to go, man. Give me two days, three days, I'll have the money. Now, I have, now I have two more questions just about, like, um, if, if we were in the ideal situation. Uh, so, like, let's imagine that uh, for some reason we have libertarian utopia and um, <laughs> I, yeah I'm, I'm with you I'm, I'm on board okay and we get the banking industry to accept full reserves um and and we have trust that these banks are run by libertarians who understand uh why fractional reserve banking is terrible um would you still recommend that people take out this policy as opposed to putting their money in a full reserve bank Aren't you afraid I'm going to accuse you of being a utopian or something with that question? <laughs> well, I don't think that libertarians are utopian, actually. So no, I, I don't I either. Don't I, I, you know, aren't you afraid I'm going to level some like childish, childish <laughs> objection at you? Um, that's what I should have said. But um, 
no, I mean, I would still say, I would still say that you want to do this, right? Because, okay, the way that banks are, right? Like I, like we've talked about briefly before, you are, you know, it's a stock owned company or a privately held company and they have shareholders and they pay dividends or, you know, whatever, quarterly bonuses, what have you to their shareholders. What you're doing with infinite banking is you're removing those people from the equation. You are the shareholder and you're the depositor or what have you. And so if there's fewer people involved, it's going to be more profitable for the ones that are, right? I mean, that's that's the long and short of it. But also it's this unique kind of tool. I mean, this has been around for way longer than any of these other things. The IRS, all that stuff was invented way later than permanent life insurance. Okay, we're talking the 1800s whole life insurance policies were around. And so, the, you know, all this modern kind of stuff that's that's playing with some of these ideas, like it's got nothing on here. Now, policy loans haven't existed since the 1800s, but they've existed a long time too. And you, you, a bank does not give you the opportunity to utilize your money and do something else at the same time, right? There's a book out there. I've actually not read it. It's called The And Asset. It's talking about whole life because you get to you know, go buy a car and get the rate of return. You get to do whatever you want and get the rate of return from your policy. And so it's just th there is nothing else like that. Um, I've seen ads from banks and places like that talking recently about becoming your own banker. And they don't quite say becoming your own banker, but they're like bank on yourself is kind of what they'll say. And it's talking about using a home equity line of credit. Like, okay, a home equity line of credit, you're loaning against the value of your home. So if the bank is in trouble, they can demand immediate repayment on your HELOC, your home equity line of credit. And then if you can't pay, they can take your house. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't feel so good about that. Right? The life insurance policy is a separate asset. It's an internally collateralized contract. So if you can't pay, just don't. Like it's fine. They don't care. <laughs> the The collateral is the death benefit. So when you die, if you don't repay your loan, you know, and it balloons to this huge size, they'll just say, okay, what's the death benefit? Minus what's the outstanding loan balance? Okay, equals the amount that goes to your beneficiary. It's a subtraction problem. So that's why I harp on this, like they don't care because they don't. Um. They're the company that gave you the money, and they're also the company that owes you the money. So it's all it's all good. Banks, it's just I, I'm sorry for giving such a long answer to a short question, but like that is a bank doesn't do any of that stuff. A bank just says, "Okay, here's some money. You must pay us back according to the schedule, or we will seize the asset." That's basically how it works. Yeah. Well, the other question I have is. Um, we, we often find Austrians, libertarians, uh, we kind of fearmonger a little bit about uh, the economic doomsday. Um, I mean, even myself, like I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the role of the dollar on the world stage, especially as we're seeing, you know, BRICS and the fact that Saudi Arabia is opening themselves up to Iran and our, you know, somewhat dependency on Saudi Arabia um, mm -hmm. for many reasons. And 
we are now seeing this banking crisis and we've had people like Peter Schiff for years <laughs> saying that the collapse is going to happen tomorrow. But but what happens if the, the collapse does come? Would you would you still recommend um, a policy like this in, in the meantime? Um, and even if it does happen, uh, I mean, that is is it inflation proof or um, if not, is it still worth it? So it's not inflation proof. And I, I'm glad you asked this question. It, you know, maybe to some people that destroys my argument or, or what have you. Uh, I don't think that it does. But no financial tool is going to survive. Like all your IRA money, all of all of these other things are going to be obliterated if there's like hyperinflation. Okay. So it depends on what you mean when you talk about like it's all gonna come down, everything's falling apart, the system is is breaking up or whatever. If you want to specifically get into something, like there's some nuance in each of those scenarios, right? But yeah, we're definitely pessimistic. At least some of us are. I have been um, for a long time. And the story that I like to tell is that in 08, 09, uh, even 07, you know, quantitative easing when all that stuff was happening, and they're really pumping money into the system. And we're talking about like tens of billions of dollars, which used to seem like a lot of money once upon a time. Uh, that period of time, like we were very nervous, my wife and I, we were very nervous about what was coming. Like, oh my gosh, it's going to be hyperinflation. We need to buy precious metals. We need to buy, you know, ration packs and water storage, you know, and all these things. We need to get ready because it's coming down. And it didn't, you know, like, did the div dollar devalue a lot? Yeah, it did. But there's still dollars. Like, I've, I've got some, you know, in my wallet right now. They're fine. They, they can be spent at this current time. They're worth less, but they're not completely worthless, right? They're not being used as toilet paper. And so that is the, the situation. And if I had done IBC and I had started all this, if I had known about it back then, I would be doing pretty darn good right now, like compared to where I am. And that's not to say we're in a bad spot, but like the value of time, the fact that time is always passing is something you can't ignore. And so I discovered this a few years later. I wish I had discovered it sooner and implemented it sooner because it gets better every year. And so, you know, if you think, if you really think, that the dollar is going to not exist in like two years, yeah, you probably shouldn't do this because it's all going to come down. This is, you know, technically a dollar-denominated contract if you want to get particular about it. Uh, it's possible and even likely that if the dollar comes apart but it isn't hyperinflation, the companies will be fine. Right, because life insurance companies are where the money is. Banks are not where the money is. It's in life insurance companies. And like Mises knew this. You look up like in Mises' text, you'll see him reference life insurance companies. So like I, you know, I'll I'll uh, broker no argument on this. Right, like it's where the money is. And so for for you know, as long as there is a dollar, I think yeah, go for it. You should do it as long as it's not hyperinflation. Hyperinflation, bets are off, dude. Get your money out and get into some physical assets, some physical things that you can own, like you know, ammo and and, and food 
and things like that. That's all very, very valuable in a literal collapse scenario. But again, like we shouldn't be perma bears to the extent that we just will not do anything. I, I get that a lot when I talk to people. It's like, well, I'm worried about this and this. And it's like, well, three years later, you know what? You're still worried about it. Anything happened yet? Okay. Um, wish you had started already so you could do something. You know, and it's not to say I harass people, but because uh, I don't. <laughs> but uh, the the time is always passing, right? Like you hem and haw and don't do anything. And it's like, wow, it's five years later. I wish I should I wish I had done this five years ago. And even if you start small, start with a $30 a month policy. I don't care, but start and understand because you'll start to realize like how powerful it is, especially over time. It'll train you to think long-term. And it, that's one of the most important things you can do because the crazy psychopaths that like run the world and all that, they're all thinking way long-term, right? They're thinking way out. And the only way to fight that is to think long-term yourself. So I, that's my... That's my argument there. But uh, yeah, if it's like this is the eve of hyperinflation or whatever, get your money out. Surrender your contract. Take a policy loan for the entire value, whatever you want to do, however you want to handle it. Call me. I'll walk you through it. Get your money out. Get some hard assets while you can. But the bank isn't going to have your money if there's hyperinflation, right? So like – it's not like you can just go get it out of Bank of America and go buy hard assets. You can have it in a couple of days from the life insurance company, and it's actually there <laughs> because they can't not have it. <laughs> so that, that's yeah. my case. Well, well, your point about the sociopaths that run the country is very true. Uh, they are thinking long term, but the way they win is to convince us to think um expediently and and focus on the the short term um and i think that there is just an overall desire for and and the trends are for people to consistently think in in short term and unfortunately it's also the 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 primary cause for a lot of our uh problems today yeah so um i i was wondering if we could just uh we are over an hour but could you maybe share like maybe the most impactful testimonial uh just so we end on a a uh, good notice since the, the whole economic doomsday question was a little de depressing. Um, what, what is, is there a story that stands out, um, maybe without using names, uh, or if, if there is someone who would be willing to, uh, have their story shared with everyone, uh, just wherever you want to take that. Yeah, gosh. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, client privacy, that kind of thing is something I take very, very seriously. And that's something I talk about with people, uh, before they sign up for policies and stuff, you know, like I on Proton Mail use encrypted email and all that stuff. Like I do not want anybody's information at risk. And so, you know, right now this this exact second, I don't have uh, specific permission from very many people, you know, to talk about their stuff. Uh, there are certainly some cool stories, but you know, just have to just have to not say them on air for now. Um, I will say though that so I have some family that. Uh, started some policies with my very first clients, okay? And so it's not my mom and dad, it's other family, but they were my first clients and they said, okay, you know, we trust you. We know that you've been talking about this stuff for a long time because I learned about IBC way before I got into the industry myself. It changed my life 
and it just continuously blew my mind so much that I was like, I have to get into this. I have to teach other people how to do it. That's why I'm here is to teach people. Uh, it's not some grandiose like play for money or whatever. It's just like, it's, it's such a powerful tool. I love teaching. And so I got into the industry and they said, you know what? We trust you. We're going to sign up for these policies, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So fast forward a couple of years and my, uh, I, I'll just say my brother-in-law. Okay. So my brother-in-law calls me and he's like, dude, you mean I can like pay off debt? like using this and it's still growing while I'm doing it and, and stuff like, yeah, it's like what I was trying to tell you, like for all this time, you know? And so we kind of had this moment and this actually happens really often where it's like, I, I totally get it now. You know, he's like, I'm so excited. I'm going to call people and talk about life insurance. I can't believe I'm saying that right now. You know, like, uh, it just, cause when you, it's like discovering libertarianism, discovering like Austrian econ and some of those things where it's like, wait a minute, you know, everything clicks all of a sudden and you kind of have this moment where you're like shaking people by the shoulders. Um, that happens sometimes like for clients. And so they'll be like, I didn't quite, I didn't really get it, but like Robert Murphy is a big proponent of this. And so like, you know, I know Bob Murphy's on board and I know that you are a trustworthy guy. And like, so I trusted some people and I started anyway. And so my brother-in-law's story is just an, one of these many examples, but they'll just call me out of the blue and be like, I can't believe this. This is the coolest thing in the world, you know? And so it's just life-changing stuff. They, they will, um, and you could read the reviews on my book. Some of the people on there are my clients, you know, uh, on Amazon. Some of those reviews we'll talk about, I got out of debt really fast. <laughs> I'm, you know, using it to do these different things, these different investments. I have one guy that uh, I just won't use his name. He, you know, came to me saying, I've got $67,000 worth of student loan debt, and I have enough money to pay it off. Should I do that? Or should I set up a policy first? And, you know, so we kind of walk through it. And it's like, yeah, it's more expensive to set up a policy first, and then do the policy loan and pay it off and et cetera, et cetera. But long term, it's so much better to set up the policy, right? And so when these things click in people's minds, I just that that to me is why I enjoy doing it so much. One of the reasons I I just really love it and I get up day after day to do it is it, people love it, man. I, I got a nice note before we came on air, like a few hours ago from somebody saying, Hey, I just got your thank you card in the mail and you know, thanks for doing all that you do and all that stuff. It's just like, it just makes me feel good. So maybe it's a self aggrandizing uh, exercise or whatever, but like I, people don't cancel policies when they, once they start them, like if it's such a bad deal, you know, how whole life insurance is a really bad place to put money. You'll hear that. If it's so bad, why doesn't anyone cancel and stop paying their premiums? Why yeah. do banks put billions of dollars in the cash values and policies? Like, you know, it's just, there. there's no, it's kind of like nobody, you know, becomes like an ANCAP or a libertarian. Like, you don't have all this stuff click in your brain and then go, oh, yeah, I guess I'm over that. I'll go back to being like a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't happen yeah. to people, right? And so- the same thing people like it makes sense it's true it's verifiably true and so when it all clicks into place and you're like wait a minute my entire fund fundamental understanding of finance has completely changed you don't you don't go oh well i guess i'll just go finance my next car from chevrolet auto finance company 
right? Like that, that's not what you do. People don't do that. <laughs> so yeah. there's my, that's my biggest uh, testament, I guess, is just that people don't cancel. Well, to tie it back to the the concept of truth and the um, acronym that we discussed earlier, it's like many people talk about Austrian economics as, as being true economics and that Keynesian economics is the, the very recent and modern distraction from true economics that has been going on for centuries. And maybe um, I, I'm starting to just understand what infinite banking is, but um, maybe this will be understood in, in the future to be true finance because it is grounded in in true economics and it's not um, grounded in a system that is based off of the illusion of fractional uh, fractional reserves and uh, printing of money. So uh, right. I, I would encourage everyone to check out your book. It's it's called Between the Lies. Um, and where can people find it? Where can people find your work? Um, if you want to just pitch your social media and, and your websites and stuff like that, we'll also sure. include I them mean, in the description of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter, Luke H Tatum. I'm on things like that. I'm not super active on Twitter to be totally honest with you, but uh, you know, social media, Twitter, Facebook, I know I'm boring. I'm on me, we, but I'm not, I don't hardly use it. And you know, I was on float and I'm on, I'm on anything. Look up Luke H Tatum and you'll probably find me. But uh, most active on Twitter and Facebook. But my book, you can find it at betweentheliesbook.com, betweentheliesbook.com. You have to include the word book in the URL. Uh, Perfect Spiral Capital is my company, perfectspiralcapital.com. Go there and uh, set up a call. Talk to me about that, um, any of those things. I also have some old work at luketatum.com which has my old uh, podcast. I haven't recorded an episode in years, but that was called Culture of Peace. That's my um, my main thing. You saw that mirrored kind of intro to the book where I was talking about peace and spreading peace. Uh, that's kind of where that came from. Uh, that was a libertarian interview show. Uh, not nearly as nice as this one, <laughs> but it was good. You know, I had a good time with it. And so if you want to look at some old blog posts and things there, um, I've got those. It's, so it's betweentheliesbook.com, perksviralcapital.com, LukeTatum.com. That's you can find everything else from those places. All right. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today. It's it's been a privilege, and I'm sure we're going to have to have you back on in the future. Thanks, uh, Liam. I had a blast. Honestly, thank you so much. Well, uh, there you have it. Um, I, I'd like to thank Luke again for coming on the show. This is actually my first time doing a interview based. Uh, podcast for decentralized revolution. I've I've done the Ask an Austrian podcast in the past, and I think I might be uh, filling in more often for um, Aaron, and and I might start to to do these interviews uh, weekly a- after this. Um, but we have a couple more podcasts coming up on the decentralized revolution series, and uh, yeah, if if anyone wants to check out Luke's stuff, I'll have the links in the description. Um, I also want to thank the co-producer for this podcast, Simon Kalpin, and um, thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all of the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. Um, and thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to the Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com. And everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Uh, we do upload to YouTube and all of the audio podcatchers and um We're going to start streaming through uh, Twitter um, and all of the various sources that StreamYard allows us to do. And then 
Uh, also check out um, our Twitter account at LP Mises Caucus. We've been doing a lot of the Twitter spaces and, and we're hoping to do that weekly and also incorporate um, these podcasts into Twitter spaces eventually so that we can uh, um, allow some questions from, from the audience. I, I think that that will be really fun to, to eventually have guests be able to um, answer questions directly from, from the audience. But uh, thank you so much for listening and, and we'll, we'll see you next time.